Well, we know that would make life much better for all of us uh, who like to argue um, with our significant others. Um, but life is not always that easy. And I think as funny as it is, does reflect, especially that quote, make any room a courtroom when we talk about conflict. And before we get into that, I just want to say uh, thank you. Uh, like I said, my name is Jeremy. I am new here at Rooftop. My wife, Lindsay, and our daughters um, just moved up from Texas. So we are excited uh, to be back in St. Louis Um, My wife just texted me and realized I took both sets of keys, so she is at home watching via live stream and will not be here this morning. So, um, 0 for 1 here on Sunday mornings. But we're good to be back here uh, to to St. Louis. I'm really excited that I was able to bring an Atlanta Braves World Series to you guys. Uh, The transition has been really smooth here. The staff has been great. People have been awesome. Uh, So we are really, really excited. Uh, This morning, let's look at the book of James chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's read. I'll read. You can listen. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scriptures say, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, this morning, as I said, we're continuing our journey through the book of James. And if you've been with us over the past month, you know that James is a unique book in the Bible. It's part of something called wisdom literature. It's a genre of writing that helps us make sense of life in this fallen world. Life in between Jesus' first coming and second coming, right? So we, we find ourselves where Jesus has come. He's inaugurated the kingdom. It's not here totally. So we're kind of living in what theologians call the already but not yet. And how do we live and make our way in this world. That's what wisdom literature and for. And last week we talked about taming the tongue. And we learned that our, our tongues usually lead to conflict. So James this morning is going to help us understand how to navigate conflict. Now before I do that, I want to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you two questions. And either write the answer to these questions down. Or if you can do it, hold these two, the answer to these two questions in your head. First... What was the last bit of personal conflict that you had with another person? What was the last kind of conflict you had with one other person? Someone on first service said, I was about five minutes ago before I got to church. 
All those who laugh. Or, yeah. Second question. For those of you who call Rooftop home, this is your community. This is where you have dug in. What would you say is the biggest conflict that we face among ourselves? What's the, the biggest disagreement that we have amongst ourselves? I want you to answer those questions either in your mind on a sheet of paper. Hold them as we walk through this. And let's see what James would tell us about that. Let's look at verse, verse 1. Verse 1 through 2. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? And you want something, you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. James gets right into it. It is pretty straightforward that the reason we have conflict with one another is not because of the other person. It starts with us. G.K. Chesterton was a famous pastor, theologian, thinker. And one day the London newspaper wrote to kind of the premier thinkers in London during that time and asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton famously wrote back, dear sirs, I am. That's all he said. Every, you could look at the paper and all the other people had these big, long, flowy answers, blaming this person or that person. And G.K. Chesterton said simply, dear sirs, I am. So James is telling us that most of the time, run-of-the-mill conflict begins in here. And that's one of the beautiful parts, I think, of Christianity is that we start with ourselves. We don't look to blame. We don't look to this person and blame them or that movement or we start with ourselves we take responsibility for the conflict and strife around us now before we dig into this i need to make one clarifying mark when i talk about conflicts and disputes i'm not talking about extreme forms of abuse if you're currently in an abusive situation physically emotionally spiritually know this that it's not your fault don't leave here thinking well if i change this maybe this person will stop no No, that's your abuser's problem. They are the issue. If you're suffering under that kind of abuse, I pray uh, that you're not going to leave this sermon blaming yourself or thinking you need to do more or try harder. By conflict and disputes, I mean your kind of -of run-of-the-mill arguments. Now, these can escalate, escalate and get way out of hand very quickly. And James says that the answer to those two questions that you talked about is this, do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? What he's saying is that basically inside of each of us, there is a prolonged military engagement that just goes on day and night. Cravings, things that we want, things that we desire are fighting inside of ourselves. And because we are disjointed and out of line, and because we have these This war going on inside of us, it spills over. And look at what he says in verse 2. You want something and you do not have it. So you commit murder. You want something you do not have it, so you commit murder. Now, that might startle us. We might sit here and think, well, is James just speaking in hyperbole, right? He's, He's not talking about real murder. 
I think we should take it that way. I think we should be startled by his language here. Think about almost every war that's taken place on the face of the earth. Has it not been one nation wanting what another nation have? A a collective craving desire. Maybe it was a resource. Maybe it was money. But what's the result? War. Strife. Death. Now... You also might be sitting here thinking, well, listen, Jeremy, I haven't ordered a drone strike on my neighbor or anything like that. I'm not running around snatching money out of poor people's hands. This sermon must have nothing to do with me. This must mean just people who get really out of control, right? Well, Jesus has something to say to that. And I think as James is taking the Sermon on the Mount and unpacking it, for this situation, I remember what we remember what Jesus says in the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard that it is said to those of ancient times, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders shall be liable of judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, You fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. What's James doing? What did Jesus know 2,000 years before we'd come, before we would be here? It's that this, we as sophisticated Western civilization humans have found more civilized ways to murder people. We might be restrained by laws to not lash out physically, but we've become experts in emotional abuse, Or as we learned about last week and we'll learn about even next week, we've become experts in gossip, experts in murdering people with our words. Let me walk through a scenario of what this looks like uh, at the Debord household. This happens more often than I would like to admit, and it's something I'm praying about, asking the Lord to help me. I come home from a long day of work, I'm I'm, I'm with people, helping people, moving things around, responding, trying to get things set up. I come home from work, and many of you experience this. You just want to be left alone, right? You walk in the house, I just want to be left alone. But I'm not alone. I have a family. My wife has uh, either been in the office maybe all day or working with a three-year-old and a five-year-old all day. And guess what? She needs a break as well. So I walk in the door, my wife comes and says, I need a break. Can you please take the kids? What happens? Well, I take the kids. Now, before you give me too much credit and say, man, what a great husband you are. Um, What happens is I take the kids, but I complain in my heart. I complain in my face. I complain in my body posture. I roll my eyes. I spend the rest of the evening frustrated, not really engaging with the kids, sitting there while they do their thing, angry and mad because why? I didn't get what I wanted. And then my wife doesn't get to enjoy the rest that she's needed because who wants to be in a house with somebody who's angry and frustrated at them, right? Now, take that, that, that's one day, that's one scenario, but take that kind of interaction and multiply that over a lifetime in a variety of different interactions. And what's happened? Murder. I've murdered that relationship. Now, before I put it all on myself, uh, maybe these are a few scenarios you would be familiar with. Maybe you're a rooftop and you're in here watching service. Uh, 
Maybe uh, you go to elementary school or you got siblings at home. What happens when you got that toy that you're playing with and that other person comes over to you and snatches that toy out of your hand? What happens? You feel angry, right? You feel frustrated. You want to go rip it back out of their hand, right? Teenager, what happens when your status with your school or your group is taking away from you, right? You, we all have this desire to want to fit in, to want to be accepted. What happens when someone starts lying about you or maybe worse, starts telling the truth about you and that status starts to get threatened? This is the human experience, conflict. And these desires inside of us are so strong that James tells us in this next part that it even affects our prayer life. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, as much as we want to believe that we are just... uh, totally in control of our lives at all moments, our emotions. We're just self-made. We got it all together. This verse shatters all that pretense. The reality is that there are cravings and desires inside of us that are so powerful that they even seep into our prayer life. They even seep into what and how we pray to God himself. We're even unable to pray as we should. The more and more I'm convinced when Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. (laughs) The more I look at my life, the more I start to believe that. We are called to emulate Jesus. We're called to follow after him in one of his main characteristics of what? Servanthood. We're called to follow after him, to be servants as he is. When I come home from work... What does it look like to serve my family? Not what does it look like to serve me? And as I begin to reflect and think about that, this quote came back into my mind that so long ago, I can't even remember who said it. But as we're called to emulate Jesus, to follow after him, to be a servant, how do we know we're doing that? How do we know we're becoming the people God's called us to be? Well, I heard this beautiful question to ask yourself. It's this. How do you know you're a servant of others? How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? Now, let's let that one sink in for a minute. I come home from work. Can you serve me by taking the kids? I do not like to feel that way. So we're involved with conflict after conflict. James has a word to describe a person like that. Verse 4, adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I just want to take time to thank Matt for giving me this passage where I get to call all of, us, all of you and myself murders and adulterers here on my first sermon. Welcome uh, to Rooftop. But there again, James shows us that the conflict, the conflict that's taking place right? It's not just a conflict happening in a vacuum and it doesn't affect anything. Friendship with the world, enmity with God, the desire to be friends with the world makes you an enemy of God. Now, let me have a pastoral moment here. That phrase, a desire to be friends with the world, 
Very rarely do we wake up in the morning and go, yep, today's a good day to become friends with the world. In fact, I think we even give ourselves too much credit in this area. I don't think we are even intelligent enough to become friends with the world, enemies of God on our own. The Bible all the time, and he talks about this in James early on. One of the main ways the Bible talks about sin is that it is deceptive. We are deceived in a million different ways to take part in a world system. Sometimes it's near impossible not to take part in the world system. And this world system creates cravings and desires among us. Think about something as simple and small as a cell phone. Do you realize the the global chain, the amount of human suffering that has to take place in order for us to have cell phones? And think about how angry and frustrated maybe teenager or kids nowadays maybe, how frustrated you get if your cell phone's taken away. But let me just read a little excerpt about how much suffering it takes to make a cell phone. Sometimes people work, this is a quote from an African miner. Sometimes people worked 24 out of 24 hours, night and day, using head-mounted lamps. One team working nights, another one working days. At the time, there were no rules, and sometimes miners died of fatigue. There were also deaths because the pits were deep and there would be accidental flooding. We were in a really isolated quarry that meant transporting the minerals to a distribution center that was more than 50 kilometers away. So the materials had to be carried on men's backs, or even, and even women and children were used. Armed groups saw themselves as being outside the law, so there was a lot of theft. Sometimes women were abused because no one could control them. When we watch an Apple commercial, when we walk by the Verizon store, we don't think about children carrying rocks or miners in man-made tunnels suffering lung damage, right? This is the insanity of the world. (laughs) Why? Why cell phones? Why, 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 why? 90% of it, at least for me, entertainment and convenience. Most of us are fooled into thinking that friendship with the world is watching rated R movies, listening to rap music, and voting Democrat. Sorry, I'm not in Texas anymore. Let me fix that. Watching rated R movies, listening to rap music, and voting Republican, right? That's what we think, like, oh, you know, that's the world. Don't do that, right? But it, it creeps into our system a million different ways, calling to us. And it creates these cravings inside of us. And we end up becoming adulterers. James is writing to Christians. But some good news here. That regardless of your hardness of heart, regardless of all the murder you've done, physical murder, emotional murder, relational, regardless of all of that, God has something for you. God wants to open up an entirely new way of being a human being. And it is completely grounded in a relationship with him. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is for nothing that the scripture says, listen to these, these are relational words. God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 
<laughs> is that amazing or what? God's posture towards us is desire. Now, this is a tricky passage, right? Yearns jealously. Is, we don't think God is, you know, an insecure boyfriend or girlfriend. He's not that. But he has so many complex emotions. And his desire for us is so great that the best we could come up with is yearns jealously. God yearns and desires to be with us. God's posture towards us, James chapter 1 and this passage, is to be near, to be close. I think a beautiful example of this I heard, I read in a book is, God's posture is someone holding a pitcher just right at the edge, right? Just ready to pour it all out upon us, right? In chapter 1, he pour out wisdom. He's just ready Think about if you grew up in the 80s or before that, you did this thing called playing outside, right? So you actually went outside for like long hours unsupervised in the streets and you played and you got hot and you got sweaty. And when you got hot enough, you would run back home. And if you were like me, you'd open up the back door and who would be there? Granny, grandma would be there and she'd have a picture of what Kool-Aid, right? In the little Kool-Aid picture that everyone had, just like just basically sugar, right? And just ready to pour that into that cup. And you were like, oh my gosh. And it was just the cool, coldest drink and you felt so refreshed. That's what God has for you this morning. That is his posture towards you this morning. Inside each and every one of you, every one of you believers, is a Holy Spirit. And part of that Holy Spirit is to redirect all those cravings that come out sideways. The desire to be accepted, right? That, that comes out sideways. But God wants to take the Holy Spirit and he wants to bring you into alignment. And he wants to point all those desires to their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, in salvation. Yes, to spend eternity with him, but also to live life in a fallen world the way Jesus calls us to live it. Let's go back to that example that I gave about myself. God knows that although I might be tired, although the reality is I'm not as tired as I really think I am, that I will find more fulfillment when I walk in that house. I'll find more fulfillment in serving my wife, in spending time with my kids. I will be more fulfilled in doing that than if I just go sit in the other room and check my fantasy football roster and check Twitter. He knows that. But there are cravings inside of me that tell me otherwise. You need time to be alone, man. You've worked hard. What's she been doing all day? These kids don't listen. <laughs> God wants to give us real fulfillment. But it's only in the way he has orchestrated the world to work. And in the ways he has orchestrated his kingdom to work. But it's hard for us to believe that he really wants good things for us. Some of us, you think that... Uh, you're so awful, uh, you're just such a wretched person that God just wants to make you suffer here on earth. And if you know, we can just pay for all the, the crappy things we've done on earth by doing all the boring things that we don't want to do, like going to church and reading your Bible and taking care of poor people. Like If we just do all that bad stuff, that boring stuff, then in heaven we'll get to enjoy all the fun stuff. 
<laughs> James is saying, if that's your pos- posture, you're an adulterer. <laughs> but God still yearns and desires to be with you. Now, he wants to give you, look at verse 6. This is one of those like life-changing, impactful verses in the Bible. Verse 6, but he gives all the more grace. He gives all the more grace. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your need, regardless of all of it, God has more grace for you. A pastor, John Planchard, once said, For daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. If you realize that you just are repeatedly succumbing to the world's version of the good life, right? Where you kind of get everything you want and you don't serve anyone else. If you come to that realization, you know what God, well, you know what we're going to say to you at Rooftop? Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the club. We're all idiots. But you know what God's going to say to you? I've got more grace. Maybe you are a victim of self-imploding or an imploding self-centeredness that just repeatedly sucks you into nothingness. And you want to be delivered from that. God's got grace for you. Maybe you're estranged from spouse. Maybe you're estranged from your children. Maybe it's because if you were honest, you're just so arrogant that you just refuse to listen to them. And you find that almost every intimate relationship you get in becomes impaired. And that even your very family considers you a burden. If you realize that and you realize that you want to change, God will give you more grace. God is ready to give you more grace. Perhaps you have some sort of insurmountable obstacle. Maybe it's a terminal disease. There's more grace. Maybe a loved one passed away and the holidays are hard. More grace. Maybe you've gone through an earth-shattering divorce. More grace. Maybe you failed at something you thought God was calling you to do. More grace. And there's grace even for the impossible. Maybe God's calling you to sell your possessions and go to the ends of the earth. More grace for that. Maybe God's calling you to take up a cause on behalf of the oppressed. Whatever he asks you, whatever he asks of you, there is more and more grace. But here's a little bit of the kicker. That grace is not just auto-infused into you. There is a location of grace. There is practices where that grace can be found. Look at what he says next. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is where grace is found. Listen, God opposes the proud. That is scary. As Jason was talking about, as he was... As we were singing, all the things we just kind of take for granted. We're self-sufficient. We do. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. I want to be able to receive that. The picture, mental picture is this. The proud are like a statue in the rain, right? Water's just bouncing off of them. Okay. 
Yes, maybe even for some Christians, there's like a general covering, you know, where the statue gets covered with water. But by no means is grace really penetrating down into the deep parts. Maybe some of us are humble enough to, we'll receive Jesus' grace for salvation, but not enough for other areas of our life. But to be humble means we get to swim in God's grace. Humble people come together and say, God, you're in control. You know. You are the way. Give me more grace to be like you. How do we gain that? How do we get there? Well, first we've got to recognize this. We do not drift towards humility. Our defaults are not to be humble. Even if you're maybe meek, maybe if you, you, know, you don't do a lot of conflict, maybe you don't really say anything, sometimes that in itself is not humble. Our defaults are selfishness, right? Maybe you don't, wanna, you don't like conflict, so instead of saying the hard thing that might bring healing to the relationship, you're just like, I'm just not going to say anything, right? That's not being humble. That's still selfishness. We don't drift towards these things. So you got to ask yourself, you live in a world that does not talk a lot about humility. What are the active practices that you're giving yourself to that will help you become more humble? James is going to give us some practical ways to do that now. Let's look at the rest of this passage, starting chapter 7. We're going to get a bunch of verbs, so now he's going to tell us, hey, here are some places where you can... Find this grace where you can find humility. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. First one, submit yourselves to God. As we talked about earlier, we know that humble people gladly submit to God because they know that submission is just not built into our world. It's not built into our culture. The world floods us. People, maybe you work in a business. You, we all go to classes that teach us how to do what? Be more assertive. Make the big play to make more money. Learn how to dominate your competition. But when's the last time you saw a TED Talk on submissiveness? We don't even like the word. Now, of course, we recognize in some cases it's been abused. But we don't like the word submission. But submission is the only way to go. And this is what I mean by submission. And I, I think it's be- a, not the best way because the Bible does it the best way. But a beautiful way submission can be expressed is this quote from Flannery O'Connor in her brilliant novel called Wise Blood, a little short story. And it's this quote about this gentleman. He says this, There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Now, what does that mean? Most of us want Jesus at arm's length. Listen, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Most of us want Jesus at arm's length. You can save me. You can bless my life. You can even take me to heaven. But don't get involved in my parenting. 
please don't get involved in my hopes and dreams. Please don't get involved with my major when I go to college. So what do we do? We bargain, right? This is what we do. We bargain. Okay, Jesus, I won't look at pornography. I won't have premarital sex if you uh, won't ask me to be a missionary. <laughs> um, Lord, you can take all my sin. You can take all my addiction, but you can't take my free time, right? Lord, you can have all the bad ways I've talked to my wife, but you can't have my Saturday when my neighbor needs me to serve them. But God, that's what it means to submit, to take all areas of our life, even the good parts, quote unquote, and lay them down before him. To take every emotion and try to bring it into submission to God. So submit to God. What else? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble people realize their dependence upon God for all things. There is a world system, friends, that's out there. And it's even darker than we can even imagine. Sometimes we get little glimpses into the darkness. But humble people resist the devil and they resist all those things. They're seeking to draw near to God to, to get his perspective on life. Here's a good way to think about this. The world is trying to program us to think the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Anything that comes against that should be resisted. Think about it. You're tempted not to love your enemies. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Can you look at an aspect of your world that's that you need to love your enemies and forgive them? Think, I mean, even nowadays in our so politically heightened culture and international affair, we're not taught to love our enemies. We want to resist that. Man, that's demonic not to forgive, not to love our enemies. But we also have a beautiful promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How can I continue to draw near to God? It's this circular thing where I'm getting more grace from God and it's causing me to draw near and near to him. Well, look at what he says later in the verse as we go down. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does it, what, what's he talking about? Is he talking about washing your hands, or is he talking about doubting God's real? Well, this goes back to James chapter 1. What we're trying to do is align our inner and outer selves into being one. If we find ourselves maybe outwardly doing the Christian things, right? Coming to church, serving, volunteering large amounts of time. But inwardly we find ourselves hating people, slandering people on social media, slandering people in our relationships. We're out of joint. We need to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. We need to not be double-minded. We think about 
The Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of course what we do with our hands matter. Of course we shouldn't be physically violent. Of course we shouldn't overdrink. But our inner emotions need to come in alignment as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What gets us more worked up in life? Our personal rights being infringed on or the blight of the poor and marginalized people around the world? Humility grows when we repent, we turn away from those things, and we ask God to bring us into alignment. Listen, this is hard work, okay? This is hard work. This is not just behavior modification. (laughs) Okay? This takes hard work to get the inner man and the outer man aligned. How might we do that? James is going to continue to bring it to us. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Now, this is not uh, the verse. I don't see this verse crocheted on a lot of grandma's fridges when I go over Thanksgiving, right? I've never seen someone mention this as their life verse. That, you know, this was a verse that they cling on to to get through life. Lament, mourn, and weep. There's something really powerful in here that can be formative in cultivating humility. Most of us, man, and and I hate saying this, but it's just the reality. We don't think enough about our sin. Now, some of you think too much about your sin. (laughs) But for some of us, a dose of reality is needed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you're like me, you want to move past the awkwardness and unease of sin and run kind of straight to the forgiveness and peace part, right? And of course that makes sense. But if I just do that over and over, if I just run to the forgiveness, run to that, and I don't really take time to reflect, am I really dealing with the sin? Am I really cleansing? If I'm not lamenting and mourning and weeping, Do I want to eliminate the sin or do I just want to eliminate the guilt I feel about the sin? Here's the difference. If you actively take steps to stop doing it, that's a good step. If I keep sinning against my wife in my emotions, getting angry, getting frustrated often, being loud, just being out of control. Oh, please forgive me, sweetie. Okay, Or do I say, you know what, maybe I need to go to counseling and figure out why I'm angry 90% of the time. Maybe I need to talk to a pastor, a community group leader, somebody about why I keep doing the same thing over and over. When's the last time we looked at the world around us and we're just heartbroken over the way this world runs? If we do that, James chapter 4 verse 10 tells us something beautiful. And this is a little humility sandwich, right? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And then right here at the end, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you. So let's take time right now to think about those conflicts that I gave, that you came to mind at the beginning of the service, at the beginning of the sermon. What would it take? To humbly approach those conflicts, looking first at yourself, 
in asking God for more grace in the areas in which you have failed, realizing that the real conflict is not between me and this person, but really between myself, and then going to that person and having a conversation. Let's pray about those things right now. Lord, we come to you um, this morning, a people needing more grace from you. The good news is that, Lord, you're ready to pour that grace out upon us. So, Lord, I pray that right now, as we prepare our hearts uh, to reflect in prayer and in singing, that we would bring our true selves to you. These conflicts, whatever they are, God, they are vast, I would imagine, in this room. Whatever they are, Lord, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us bring ourselves to you and say, Lord, let it start with me. Show me. Lord, I I keep hurting people in my relationships. I, I, I keep hurting people. Why? What's inside of me that that keeps doing that? Lord, I'm too quick-tempered towards people around me. Lord, I find myself in every argument. Lord, I would argue with you if you told me the sky was blue. I would just show me, Lord. Church, I want to encourage you. You know what's waiting for you is more grace. More grace is waiting for you. It might be hard. It might be challenging. You might mourn. You might weep. You might lament. You might have to go to counseling. You might, but there is more grace for you this morning. This could be the first step in a renewed life. So, Lord, as we sing and as we reflect, pour out more grace, Lord. Lord, show us that you have goodness for us. Lord, show us who we are. But let us turn and run to you. Jesus, name we pray. Amen. Will you sing? Take a moment to sing and reflect.